0: (laughs) Take your Bible and open with me this morning back to Matthew chapter 21. Continuing through the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we're looking at verses 18 through 27. The title of the message is, By What Authority? What we find in our text this morning, two more occurrences where Jesus has come now through the triumphal entry into Jerusalem being hailed by the Galilean crowd, traveling on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover as the Messiah, as the son of David, as king and as savior. And as he entered the city, of course, those in Jerusalem would not accept that he was who the crowd was proclaiming him to be. They were troubled. And so Jesus moved in then to the temple and cleansed it, overturned the money changers table and chased them out to purify the temple. Two other things happen here to assert his messianic authority in Jerusalem. You'll remember now, we are into the last week of his life. The week that we have entered into in Matthew 21, by the Friday of that week, Christ will be being crucified. So he, he has put it into high gear as far as confronting the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's going to continue to escalate that all the way to chapter 24, where he's going to continue to call out the false religion, the twisting of the truth, the rejection of the truth about who he was and what he had come to do. This morning in our text, we're going to see that He curses a fig tree, and we'll get to see the explanation for that. And he's also questioned about by what authority he's doing these things. The chief priests basically come to him and say, wait a minute, you're a prophet from Nazareth. You're not under our jurisdiction. We didn't give you the authority to do this. By what authority do you even claim to make these claims? And Jesus is going to answer their question with a question. But we start, starting in verse 18, in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly I say to you, if you had faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. We've got a curse here, but we've also got a promise. We've got a negative followed by a positive. And this comes from the basis that Jesus early in the morning now, remember this is the week of Passover. This is early springtime. The fig trees in this region would not have been bearing fruit yet unless there was some early fruit. Now, what we have to understand from the text is Jesus looks at the fig tree. He's hungry. He tries to find a fig on it, and there's not a fig to eat, so he curses the fig tree. Uh, We wonder why that happened, because Mark, in his account, says, seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he could find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And we immediately begin to wonder what Jesus is doing here, because it's not fig season. So why did he expect to find figs, and why did he curse the tree? Not the tree's fault. It's not fig season, but he curses the tree. Well, what's interesting is the way it's explained that he found a tree with leaves. And the word to describe leaves there is not just a few leaves. This was a big fig tree. Fig trees in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, can grow up to 20 feet high and 20 feet across. This is a big, leafy fig tree. And that's the problem. Because you see, when a fig goes into fruit production, it drops most of its leaves, And so the figs will start to grow. And then as the figs grow and ripen, the leaves grow out again. And so if you find a fig tree with a lot of leaves, that's a sign that there's early fruit on that tree. It should be bearing fruit. Basically, this fig tree lied to Jesus. A promise was made. There should be figs here. You're hungry. You're traveling back between Bethpage and Jerusalem on a daily basis now. You're up early in the morning. You probably didn't get breakfast. You're coming, you see a fig tree, and Jesus, it says he was hungry. He was a man, proof of his humanity. He's hungry. So he thinks possibly this fig tree has figs, but it doesn't. Now, we also know, by the way, that this is fulfillment for prophecy. This isn't just Jesus being disappointed that a fig tree didn't have a fig. Yes, he was hungry, and yes, he had reason to curse the tree because there was a promise without provision. There was leaves, but there was no fruit. But as Jesus curses the fig tree, we learn in the next paragraph that he's teaching us a lesson about faith and about prayer. But even before we get there, we look at the real reason for the curse on this tree. See the leaves here representing Israel, outward religion. Everything looked right with God. If you can imagine this week in Jerusalem would have been the most religiously fervent week of the year. Pilgrims had come, they had traveled for weeks to come to Jerusalem to get ready for this week, for that Friday, for the sacrifice of the Passover lambs at the temple. This was the biggest attended feast of the year in Jerusalem for Israel. So here all these people are, and if you were to walk through the city, you would think that religion abounded, that everybody was there to worship God. But the reality is, as is signified by the fig tree, Everything on the outside looked great, but there was no fruit. The tree was barren. No fruit at all to be found. Now, as Jesus then curses the tree, people say, well, Jesus is acting a little bit out of character here. I mean, usually he's using his power to heal, not to curse. I mean, we've not seen him do this before. He actually curses and destroys this fig tree. Now, Matthew presents it as if this all happened immediately. He does say immediately. It means quickly. Mark tells us that he saw the tree, cursed it, and when they came back the next day, it had completely withered and died. The point was, whether it was instant or whether it took a day, that's a fast time for a bushy, healthy tree to completely wither and die. To the point that the disciples marveled. They were amazed. They said, how did that happen? They heard Jesus curse the tree and then still said, why did that happen? Listen, if God's word condemns something, don't be surprised when you do it and bad things happen. Sin has consequence. God's word means something. When Jesus cursed this tree, the tree was cursed. Let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. This is not Jesus acting out of character. In fact, this is Jesus acting very much in line with the Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets were doing things all the time that were considered shocking and out of character. Always they did it at the direction of the Lord to draw attention to a lesson that needed to be learned, to a point that needed to be made. Isaiah Isaiah experienced this in a rather dramatic way. I am glad I am not the prophet Isaiah. You are glad I am not the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 20, he was given a command by the Lord to give a sign to the people. And the sign was that he was supposed to remove the sackcloth from his body from a time of mourning, take his sandals off, strip naked and walk barefoot around the town for three years. As a sign that Israel was going to be stripped and exposed before the world because of their sin. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel was actually told to eat a scroll. He was given a book, a scroll with writing on it and told to eat it. So he opened his mouth and he says, he caused me to eat the scroll. He said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate it and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. So here he is eating a scroll. Now, that, that, that would be like me trying to make a spiritual point by eating my Bible in front of you this morning. I'm not going to eat my Bible. Don't worry. We also have in Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I will take away from me the desire of your eyes with one stroke. The Lord was going to cause his wife to die. And he was told that he couldn't mourn and that he couldn't weep, that he should, couldn't show any outward sign of grief over her death. He was to go about as if everything was completely normal and not sorrow as God accomplished that. To make a dramatic point to the people about how they were treating the devastating truth of their sinfulness. They were pretending like it didn't matter, like it didn't grieve them, like it grieved God. So the Old Testament prophets would do this all of the time. Other examples that we know where the Old Testament prophets were told to do something to make a point. So Jesus is drawing attention to a lesson by the use of this symbol with the fig tree and the lack of fruit. You see the tree at this point represents for the disciples watching Israel. And Israel was going to be judged. Israel was rejecting Christ. Already he was getting resistance. The chief priest and the scribes and the Pharisees had already been seeking to kill him and to harass him. And now he's in Jerusalem being declared to be the son of David, the Messiah, the king. And this caused them to be fearful. They did not want to accept him as their Messiah. And so they revolted and rejected him. John 1 verse 11 reminds us he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Now, yes, there is the remnant of grace, the remnant of those who did believe, including his disciples and others, but on the whole, the nation of Israel rejected him and the religious leaders absolutely, almost to a man, rejected him. There were exceptions, Joseph of Arimathea Nicodemus. There were a few others there that saw who he was, recognized who he was and believed. But for the most part, They absolutely refused to believe who he was. When he came looking for fruit, we have this analogy that runs through the scripture. God started in Isaiah chapter 5 and he said, I was preparing a vineyard and I planted the vineyard. I got all the weeds out. I prepared it. I built a wall. I got the best seed and I planted. And when it came time to harvest the grapes, the grapes were wild. And God says, what more could I have done with the vineyard to produce a better vintage of grape? And of course, the vineyard was Judah. He said, this is my people, and I've done everything to prepare them, but they have rejected me. They've turned against me. So when Christ comes looking for fruit in Israel, fruit, the behavior that God requires of his people to be pleasing to him, he didn't find it. Instead, he found pride and hypocrisy. He found, as we'll go through, it'll probably take us three sermons, I think, to get through Matthew 23, the levels of curses that he utters toward the Pharisees and the scribes because of the wickedness, because of the sin, because on the outside, everything looked religious and holy and righteous, but on the inside, he said, you're full of dead men's bones. You're like a grave, pretty on the outside and dead and decaying on the inside. This is what Jesus was looking for. He was looking for fruit and he couldn't find it. We know this, by the way, from the next parable to come in verses 33 through 46. There's another parable of a vineyard and one verse specifically there in verse 45 where it says, now he's talking about the chief priest and the scribes. He's talking about the fact that there's a landowner. He's got a vineyard. He sends a servant to check on it, and they beat the servant, chase him away. He sends another one, and they kill him. And finally, he sends his son to find out what's going on, and they kill his son and take over the vineyard completely. And as Jesus condemns that, verse 45 says, Now, when the chief priest and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Now, you remember, he usually spoke in parables to conceal the truth. Well, here a little bit of it gets revealed and it dawns on these religious leaders that Jesus is condemning them for what they've done with the people of God, with the truth of the covenants, with the promises that God had given. We also see this in Old Testament lessons throughout the Old Testament that actually some of them refer to a fig tree and to the fruitfulness of a fig tree. In Jeremiah 8, it says, For they have healed the hurt of my daughter of my people slightly by saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. The chief priests are saying, Everything's all right. God has a wonderful plan for your life. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and prosperous. And God doesn't want you to suffer. And if you'll just have enough faith, everything will be wonderful. He goes on and says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they excuse sin. They were not at all ashamed. They didn't even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, no figs on the tree. The leaf shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. God says because of their sinfulness, he's going to judge them. In Hosea chapter 9, he says through the prophet Hosea, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. My God will cast them away because they did not obey him. And they shall be wanderers among the nations." The difficulty that we find, Paul expresses it in the book of Romans in chapter 9. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense.'" And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Paul tells us Israel was this close to the truth. But where they tripped, where they stumbled, where they fell, was when they realized that the truth was Jesus was who he said he was. And they had already determined to kill him, to do away with him, to hate him, to reject him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Now that's good news for those of us who are Gentiles in the nations, right? Because then the gospel came to the whole world. Paul says that now the gospel has been sent to the rest of the world. The gospel is still being preached to Israel. There are still a remnant of the elect, he tells us, in Israel. And we look forward to the last day where he tells us all Israel will be saved. For now, there was rejection. There was no fruit. There really was a false religion that had taken over in Israel. That's why Jesus went first to the temple and cleansed it. And then when he confronted these scribes and these chief priests and these Pharisees, He was going to curse them just like he had cursed this fig tree. And this was not just symbolic. This was going to happen in history and in time. God was going to bring judgment upon the people of Israel. It's pretty clear that what happens here with the fig tree, some read over it and they just wonder what Jesus is doing. He just got mad at the tree and cursed it. But this is actually a fulfillment of direct prophecy. In Micah chapter 7 We read, Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit, which I am hungry for. You hear the description there? I went to find the first fruit, the first early fruits of the season, because I was hungry for them, but there was no fruit there. Here's what that describes. The faithful man has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among them. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe and the great man utters his evil desire. So they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorny hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter in law against her mother in law. A man's enemies are those of his own household. Now, Isaiah and Micah were preparing the people of Judah to be judged and taken into Babylon into captivity. Jesus now is ministering to Israel under the boot of Rome. And remember, they wanted a Messiah that was going to come and overthrow Rome. And instead, Jesus is denouncing Israel. He cleanses the temple. This is what shocked the religious authorities. The chief priest expected Jesus, if he really was the Messiah, to denounce Caesar, and instead he denounced them. Well, the Messiah was to stand against Rome, against the Greek world, against those outside, and instead he's denouncing as his enemies those who serve God in the temple. There has to be some kind of great understanding, but God here through Christ promises that he's going to judge his people for the rejection of his son. Isaiah 34, 4 tells us all the host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. Hosea 2.12 says, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me, so I will make them a forest and the beast of the field shall eat them. God says, everything you have been given is going to be taken away. You're going to be judged. Joel 1.7 says, he laid waste my vine. He ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. This is the judgment that's coming. Now we see the curse and we see how horrible that is. And we know how that is going to be discussed over the next several chapters. And eventually he describes the fulfillment in Matthew 24. And we see the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD as the Romans come in and the very temple that Jesus cleansed, they tear down brick for brick to the point that only a small section is left standing still today. But out of that curse, Jesus brings a promise to his disciples because his disciples saw it and they said, how did the tree wither so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, "Assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. On the other side of this curse, because of no fruit, Jesus turns it around to make a positive and teaches disciples how to pray. He says, you you think it's amazing that I cursed this tree and it died in a day? You're going to be able to do even greater things than that. What greater things? Everybody says, ooh, that means God's going to give us the power to do miracles and do all sorts of things. Listen, I I heard a preacher, I use that term loosely, this week, who actually claims to have inherited a spiritual gift from one of the spiritual forefathers of the Health, Wealth, and Prosperity, Name it, Claim it, Word, Faith movement, And he said that God, in order to demonstrate his power to this preacher and show his anointing, commanded him to create a squirrel out of nothing. Squirrel. So he claims that in a park, sitting on a bench, he commanded in the name of Jesus for a squirrel to materialize. And it did at the foot of the tree. And then before he could take a picture of it, it disappeared. Convenient. He was issued a challenge. Justin Peters challenged him and said, next time you call a squirrel into being out of nothing, hit record before you command it to come out of nothing. We want proof. Now, what's the point? The point is, he says, anything that God tells us we can do above and beyond what Jesus did, that means we can do whatever we want. You want a pet dog? Call it into existence. You want this? You want money in your bank account? Call it into existence. You can try all day long, folks. You're not going to get anywhere. Now, the point is, my problem is, I don't need to create squirrels from nothing. I've got enough of them on the bird feeder as it is. We don't need more squirrels in the world. We need more faithfulness in the world. We we look and we see the errors. We see that people are crazy, but Jesus makes a point here. When he tells them, you're going to be able to do things greater than what I've ever done. He's not talking about ability to curse fig trees or even to make a mountain jump in the lake. You understand that doing this for us Is just like our salvation. For us, it's impossible. Jesus says through the power of faith and prayer, you can see the impossible accomplished. And the way he describes it here is not that you're going to do it, but it's going to be done through you, with you, and to you. As you believe God, he can do greater things with you than cursing fig trees and telling mountains to jump in the lake. God can do the impossible. And you all have experienced this. If you followed Christ for more than a few weeks, you know he's already done something impossible. He gave you new life and a reconciled relationship with him. And from our point of view, that was impossible. There's nothing we could do to buy it, to earn it, to win it, to be good enough. People say, well, God on that day is going to take all my good and stack it up on the scale and all my bad on the scale. And here's what you miss. All you have to put on the scale is bad. There is no good. Our righteousness is a filthy rag. Thankfully, the righteousness placed on the scale on that day is the righteousness of Christ. And it obliterates all of the evil we can do. It's his righteousness that matters. It's his power that matters. Christ calls them to have faith to see God do the impossible. You know this. We've got people that we know in our church who are still alive who the doctors say shouldn't be. Right? Why? Because we prayed and got answered. Because we went in faith and petitioned. And God is gracious and merciful. Sometimes I think we miss how eager God is for us to ask, and he will answer. He will demonstrate his power. The faith that Jesus talks about here is practical confidence in God's power and his willingness to respond. It's not faith in my ability to have faith. It's not even faith in my ability to pray a powerful prayer. I loved it that one one old time evangelist said that the strongest, most powerful prayers ever uttered in public were short and to the point and they came from hours and days and years spent in private prayer in the prayer closet. So many people like to pray eloquently and at length. You know, the prayers in the Bible that God calls powerful are short and to the point with just a bare faith. You realize Isaiah on Mount Carmel or Elijah on Mount Carmel, challenging the prophets of Baal. When it's his turn to call fire out of heaven, prays a 63 word prayer and didn't even mention the word fire. He just asked God to show himself to his people and the fire came and fell and consumed everything and the people fell on their faces before God. There was revival and then the drought broke. A powerful prayer, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's a practical confidence, not in my ability to pray. We have to understand there are times we can't pray. There are are times we can't put it into words. And then aren't we glad that Jesus is interceding for us and the Spirit is groaning along with us so that we are being prayed for before the throne of grace by the Son and the Spirit to the Father. So if you don't know what words to put it in, you know what? Just tell him, I don't have the words. He knows. And he still hears. And he answers. This is a a faith that expects God to respond, that comes and asks and petitions. Now, I will tell you be careful when you pray, because if God says no, I I don't say that it's wrong to go back and ask again, but approach him cautiously. We're we're told to come before the throne of grace boldly. Boldly is not brashly. We don't make demands of God, we make requests of God. And we pray with a mind that if God, if what I'm asking for is not your will, Change my mind. Prayer is worship. Prayer is transformative. Prayer is sanctifying. It's us spending time with Him, expressing our praise and adoration of Him, bringing our needs and the needs of others before Him, asking with that practical confidence, trusting God and His power and His willingness to respond. And He says, He says this, assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, the word doubt there means. hesitation to trust. When you ask, don't hesitate to trust. I heard the greatest illustration of this from a pastor in Africa recently. he had gathered the people in the town to pray for rain. There'd been serious drought and they wanted to pray for rain. And the lesson that he derived from calling the church together to pray was that when they all came to pray, on the day they came to pray for rain to break the drought, only one church member brought an umbrella. And he said, well, wait a minute. If we're coming together to pray for God to break this drought and send rain, why did only one person, and that was a child, bring an umbrella? And there you see the faith like a child. A child says, we're going to pray for rain. I'm going to get wet on the way home. I better take an umbrella. That is faith like what Jesus is talking about. To ask expecting the answer with no doubting, with no hesitation to trust. What what, what did did our minds would ever lead us to hesitate to trust God? Please tell me one time in all eternity, God has not been faithful. God has failed. God hasn't done what he said he was going to do. One instance. There's no instance where God has failed. You know why we hesitate to trust him? Because our faith is misplaced. Because we trust ourselves. We think we know better. How, how often have we prayed for something all the while praying and asking, doubting? It's the prayer meeting in the book of Acts. Lord, get Peter out of prison. So God sends an angel to do it. And Peter knocks on the door. Rhoda comes to the door. Who is it, Rhoda? It's Peter. No, it's not. He's in prison. We're praying for him. Remember? And we laugh at that, but isn't that how we pray? We ask God to do something, but we hesitate. We doubt. We don't believe he will. We wonder if maybe he's withholding something. We ask God why. Now, I'll tell you, it's not wrong to ask God why, but check your attitude when you do. Don't question him. You can come and ask, but don't ever question him. What I like about this, too, is when Jesus is talking to the disciples here, he said, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, But also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. Whatever things you ask. Every time the word you is there, it's plural. Here's how to remember it. Here's what Jesus really said. Let's translate it. Okay, let's put this in Texan. Assuredly, I say to y'all, if y'all have faith and don't doubt, y'all will not only do what was done, but y'all are going to do even better. You're going to do the impossible. It's plural. This I think, readily speaks to the necessity of a praying community, not just praying individuals. We pray together in our prayer closets. We should pray together with our families. We should definitely pray together as a church. This is God's people as a praying community coming and agreeing in prayer, expecting God to answer because he is powerful, he can and he will. To come and in that unity of purpose Bring our request for each other to God. When we do, we're going to see the impossible made possible. Because really, the only thing impossible for sin, for God is sin. Nothing else is impossible for him. Who can stop him? Who can say no to him? So we need to ask. We need to believe. We do need to receive. He, t- he tells us there in verse 22, whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. This is, as it's been put by some, to ask in Jesus' name. Now, What does that mean? That means if you just tack in Jesus' name on the back of whatever you say, God has to do it. Again, heard another preacher, loosely using the term, who said that he had to go to God. He needed something from God. And so he went to God and said, God, you have to give this to me because you said in your word. We cannot make demands upon God. We bring our request because of what he has said. Now, we do see David doing this. David is all the time reminding God what he said. Well, God, you said, God, you said, God, you said. You know who is really being reminded there? God was not being reminded. David was being reminded. This is the God to whom I'm praying. God, this is what you said. Not to come in to make demands, but to come in to ask and to believe and to receive. To do this in Jesus' name means according to his purpose, his character, and his will. If you ask in Jesus' name in accord with his purpose, his character, and his will, why would he say no? At that point, it's an easy yes. John 14, in the upper room, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You ask in accord with his purpose, his character, and his will. To ask that way means also to pray like he prayed in the garden, to be willing to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. First John 5, 14 says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we read God's word. We study what God wants and we ask God to give us what God wants. This is how we need to learn to intercede. Don't pray for what you want. Pray for what God wants and be open to receive it by faith. Pray for God to show himself strong. For God to do what he wants. Uh, Here, let me let you know a secret. That's what he's going to do anyway. How much better to be cooperating with him Ask God to do what he wants. John MacArthur said this of this verse, we have unimaginable power available to us through our faith in Christ. And none of this originates with us. It's because of Christ and who he is and what he's come to do. That's the source of the power. That's the source of doing the impossible. That's the source of the miracle if there is to be any. It's Christ doing what Christ does according to his will, for his good pleasure, always for our good. So whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. We go on then to verse 23. When he came into the temple, so we're back at the temple again, the chief priest and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? He comes and he's teaching again in the outer courts of the temple. And the chief priests see that he's in there again. Last time he was here the other day, he was turning over tables and chasing out the money changers and the animals. So he's back. And the two questions, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Really, they're asking, who do you think you are? You already caused a commotion. You caused a riot the other day. You claimed this was your house. My house shall be called a house of prayer. The crowds are claiming you're a Messiah. The children are saying you're the son of David and you're letting them praise you and you're letting them say that? By what authority? That's another way for them to say, we didn't say that. We didn't give you permission. Don't ever wait for the permission of a religious leader to speak the truth. If you think you need my permission to preach the gospel, you don't need my permission. God's told you what to do, what to say and how to do it. My job is to equip you to go do it. So go do it. But here Jesus is, and they asked him the questions, and he answers with a counter question. This actually is a rabbinical way to debate. And in this debate, you would answer a question with a question, and in asking the question would provide your answer. Have you ever answered a question with a question? This is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. Said, okay, I'll answer your questions. But first, I'm going to ask you a question. You answer my question, and then I'll answer your question. The question, by the way, that he asks gives them the answer that they need. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? All this time in the gospel, we see the scribes and the Pharisees coming and trying to trap Jesus with questions and trying to trap him and stump him and get him to where he can't answer. He doesn't know what to say. He turns the tables on them. You see, the first time he was in the temple, he literally turned the tables over. Now he's turning the tables on them and asking them a question they can't answer without getting into trouble. However they answer this, they're going to get into trouble. The baptism of John. Would they have confessed that John was a prophet? They all went out into the wilderness outside of Jerusalem to watch and to listen to him. When the scribes of the Pharisees came, what did John say to them? Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? What have you come out to see? A reed shaking in the wind? And as he preached and as the crowds repented and as they were baptized, the question then is, John's baptism. Was this something sent by God or was it just a device of men? Was John a prophet? is what he's really asking. Because if John is a prophet, his power comes from heaven. His authority comes from heaven. The power behind the message that he preached was a heavenly message. God had sent him to do this. And here's what we know. They asked John, are you the prophet? Meaning, are you the Messiah? And he said, no, but he's coming after me. He's greater than I am. He's got to increase, I've got to decrease. John was put in prison. John eventually was beheaded. And when Jesus came on the scene... What did they accuse? Who do you you think I am? They thought he was John. They thought he was Elijah. They thought he was a prophet. What was clear was that Jesus was John's successor. Remember the crowd in verse 11. How did they identify him to the people in Jerusalem? This is the prophet from Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. The prophet. The Messiah. This is the one prophesied by Moses and presented as John prepared the way. So within the crowd, there was no doubt that John was a prophet sent from God and that Jesus was his successor. He was to follow John's ministry, pick it up, and make even more of it because Jesus was the one to whom John pointed. That would mean if his power came from heaven like we think and like we know, if John's power and authority came from heaven, then so did Jesus's. If the chief priests say here, well, yes, he was a prophet and his authority came from heaven, they would by default then be saying, Jesus Oh, your authority comes from God, too. We'll be quiet. You know what's something hard for religious leaders to do? Be quiet. Just sometimes you just need to be silent in the presence of God and truth. Just stop. But they couldn't stop. But they also knew they couldn't answer from men because they knew he was a prophet. And they knew the crowd listening to Jesus teach knew he was a prophet. And they knew the crowd was there already saying Jesus was a prophet like John was a prophet. And so now they realize we're not going to have one man in here turning over tables. We're going to have this whole crowd riot on us if we say that his baptism and that authority came from man. Well, we can't say it's from God because then we validate what Jesus is saying. And we can't say it's from man because we fear the crowd and they'll tear us to shreds. So they said what every child has ever said when they know exactly what they did wrong. And you find them and you confront them. What do they say? I don't know. What are you doing with your hand in the cookie jar? I don't know. Were you getting a cookie? I don't know. All right, you remember the routine, right? What are you doing with that cookie? How it's getting it for you. You know this. I don't know. I don't know. And you know they know. You see that they know, and they see that you know they know, and what do they say? I don't know. Human nature. Sinful fear. We don't know. What they missed, When they say we don't know, again, it says, he said from heaven or from men, they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why do you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In reality, what Jesus is saying is, there you have your answer. You know the truth. You know the truth. Them saying they don't know really is them saying we'd rather not say. We don't want to commit either way because one way is going to affirm that you are who you say you are and we're going to have to worship you as the Messiah and we absolutely would rather die than do that. But if we tell the crowd that it's of men, the crowd's going to turn on us and they're going to kill us anyway and we really don't want to die that badly. So we're just going to play dumb. We don't know. Well, that really is their profession of faith, isn't it? There you have their answer. The answer was, they feared men more than they feared God. And that's why they could not accept Christ as who he said he was. They feared men more than they feared God. Now we know the answer to the question, where does this authority come from? By what authority are you doing this? Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, doesn't he? As he's giving the great commission, what does he say? He tells the disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we have the great commission. Because Jesus has all authority on earth. Did did you notice a theme this morning in what we say? We started with Jesus saves. And we look at all that he saved us from. He saved us from death. He's given us endless life. He's got victory over hell. And then we sang, oh, worship the king. And then we say Jesus shall reign and then rejoice the Lord is king and then worship Christ, the risen king. Here's the point. What did Jesus say by saying he was the prophet? He was the Messiah. He was the savior. He was exerting the fact that he had come to establish his kingdom on the earth because he is the king of creation. And that's who the chief priests and the scribes rejected. They would not bow to Jesus. And in not bowing to Jesus, they wouldn't bow to God. They thought authority belonged to them as the chief priest. But Jesus tells us all authority has been given to him. There have been debates over the generations over what is called lordship salvation. You understand there's no debate. Jesus is Lord, period. There's no debate. He is the king. He's come to establish his kingdom. The question is, will we bow the knee to him now and confess him as our king and as our savior? Amazingly, the chief priest refused to do that. They heard the crowds. They heard what he said. They saw the demonstration of miracles. They listened to him preach. But they refused to accept what he said is true. Now, just because they didn't accept it didn't mean they didn't know it was true. They knew the truth, and that is seen in their rejection. Their solution was then to conspire with the Romans and to find a way to put Jesus to death. The only way they could get out of him being king was if he was a dead king. And rather than bow to him, they were willing to put him to death so that they could have their own way. Peter points it out on the day of Pentecost. And this is how futile it was. This Jesus whom you took by lawless hands and crucified, this Jesus, God raised up. Why? Because God's will is going to be done. That's why we pray for what God wants. His will is going to be done. And most of that battle that we have in prayer and the questions that we ask are really to get at the heart of who God is, what his word tells us, and whether or not we can trust him, whether we can believe him. I think that too often our prayers demonstrate that we have a puny faith, if any faith at all, because we are praying to the God who created all that is out of nothing by the power of his word what is too hard for him? So we ask, believing, and we receive. And then who gets the glory? What well, we do for being buried in prayers. No, he gets all the glory. That's what he's doing. He's demonstrating his power, his sovereignty, his love, his mercy, his care. Every time he answers one of our prayers. He is reasserting for us to see and to testify to the world that he is who he says he is, that he is God, and that all that he does is good. Aren't you glad we serve a sovereign God who is good and who asks us to come and to ask believing without doubting, and he will answer our prayers. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning for this demonstration of Jesus's power for the promise of answered prayer. fathers, we've mentioned this morning, there are so many people who are sick and who are fighting battles health-wise and otherwise. So many for us to continue to bring before your throne of grace. Some we've just started to pray for as things are new. Some we've been praying for for years. And yet every day reveals more of your grace, more of your mercy, more of your answer as we pray and Pray that you would do what you want to do so that your name might be exalted. Father, I do pray that you would transform our prayer lives in this week to come. That that time that we spend with you would be a precious time of relationship building, of getting to know you better. The more we know you, the more we can trust you, the more we will trust you. The more of you we see, the more of you we need to see, the more of you we want to see. Father, I pray through these trials, through these struggles, through these difficulties, that you would draw us very close to yourself. Give comfort where it's needed for those who are struggling. Give healing to those who are facing physical ailments, sickness. And Father, we ask that you do it all of this just for your glory alone. Do it to show yourself strong. Do it because of who you are and what you've promised us. We thank you for the power that's available, not through prayer, but through a walk with you. Power that comes from you when we ask to transform us and make us more like Christ. Father, grow us in this week to come. Grow us so that we might trust you more than we do day by day. We pray these things in Jesus' name, according to his will and according to his ability. Amen.